to see everybody here. See some new folks. Uh, what were you named? Cade, was it? Uh, <laughs> great to have Alan and Jean back. Look at that. We have missed you. And others, too, who are just getting back with us. All right. Uh, today we're going to be heading back to Philippians chapter 3. But before I do that, uh, I want to take a question, uh, a question that has come uh, more than once. So I think it's important for us to try to talk about this, and uh, so here is the, here's the question. <clears throat> Dave, are you, or the elders, the question has come different ways, are you moving the church in a liberal, that's the way it's said sometimes, other times the word is progressive, in a liberal or progressive direction? Well, the short answer is no, uh, but we probably needed more discussion than that, right? So let me try to uh, tackle this, and uh, it's something, I mean, we could spend a whole, the whole message time on it. We're not going to, but, uh, but this, maybe this will stimulate some further discussion, which uh, I'd be happy to have, either as a group or... Uh, uh, with individuals, but I think, uh, I think the question is out there enough that, that I thought we need to talk about it here. I, I was reading a, a book this week, or rereading it actually, uh, a book by Tim Keller, who is the founding pastor of the Redeemer Church Network in, uh, in Manhattan. And uh, probably the, the leading churchman in the Presbyterian Church in America, a conservative denomination. And in this book, which is uh, called uh, Generous Justice, Keller talks about what he calls a whole cloth Christianity. That is a, a full-orbed understanding of the gospel, and, and he says, part of the thing we struggle with in our culture is that we've got this polarization of conservative and liberal, and, and the conservatives pick up certain important elements of the gospel, particularly the personal dimensions of righteousness. The liberals, on the other hand, uh, pick up more of the social dimensions of righteousness, and uh, that's a problem then for Christians who are trying to navigate through that world and say, we want a whole cloth Christianity, or we want to be... If, the way we've been talking about here, we want to be kingdom people, right? We want to try to reflect what Jesus has to say about the nature of his kingdom. So that's a little background. I'm, I'm going to take a paragraph here, and, and it fills out a little bit more what Keller's saying. 
Each of America's two main political parties has built its platform on one of these sets of ethical prescriptions to the near exclusion of the other. Conservatism stresses the importance of personal morality, especially the importance of traditional sexual mores and hard work. And it feels that liberal charges of racism and social injustice are overblown. On the other hand, liberalism stresses social justice and considers conservative emphases on moral virtue to be prudish and psychologically harmful. Each side, of course, thinks the other side is smug and self-righteous. Now, I, I think he's got, it, it's a simple, but I think it's a fairly accurate analysis of American culture, which is, uh, that was written in two, 2010, it's just accentuated, I think, in, in the politics of our day. So I thought I'd put that in a diagram, just so we're all kind of tracking with it, right? So let's talk about the kingdom and the kingdoms. Keller's concern is for the kingdom of God, what he calls whole cloth Christianity. That's the kingdom we've been talking about on and off. We did a whole series on living in the kingdom of God, and our present series is about transformation, learning to live in the kingdom of God. Now what Keller says is, we've got, we've got a liberal contingent, and, uh, or progressive, you might want to call it, and what he's saying is that some of the concerns of the left or the liberal contingent are valid kingdom concerns. Talk about that a little bit more in, in a minute. The same is true of the conservative movement. It also has valid kingdom concerns. The difference is that the liberal side focuses more on the corporate elements and the conservative side more, not exclusively, but more on the private personal. Of course, the way those circles are drawn are those ellipses. Uh, the suggestion is that there's significant parts of both movements that are not kingdom. Right? They have some overlap, but by no means total overlap. That's why those circles aren't drawn inside the kingdom. <clears throat> and of course, we know what has happened culturally. These groups have polarized, and so the dynamics in our culture are the dynamics of fear and anger and contempt. And fear is slavery, and anger and contempt is corrosive. The result is what we see politically in Washington, we see it also in our state houses, is <clears throat> that there's hardly anybody left in the center, 
and there's virtually no work across the aisle, right? And so what we have is government gridlock. And it's out of frustration for that that we've had a series of presidents now who have focused on executive orders to get things done because Congress is, is pretty hopeless. All right, now, back to our question. Am I or are the elders of Grace Bible Church trying to lead this church in a liberal direction? Uh, again, the answer is no. We are trying to lead ourselves and to help you to move in a kingdom direction. We are relatively little interested, I'm much less interested than some of you are, in that political back and forth. Because I do see anxiety and anger as corrosive and destructive. Now, if we're going to talk about kingdom, though, it is going to take us into some areas, not only of conservative discussion, but some areas of liberal discussion. Because there's, as Keller points out, there's some overlap here. The liberal side has been more concerned with corporate dimensions of righteousness. You may not like, I may not like, some of the solutions proposed, but the concerns themselves are legitimate. So, example. <clears throat> A few weeks ago, I mentioned that the elders have been reading the book by Jamal Tisby, uh, The Color of Compromise. Right? It is a book <clears throat> written by a black evangelical Christian, a brother in Christ, right? And his, one of his major theses in the book is that the white church in America over hundreds of years has not done well by its black brothers and sisters. It's this issue of race, right? Now, some people heard that and said, that's liberal progressive crap. And, and I'm here to push back on that. Uh, the issue of race, my friends, is very definitely a kingdom of God issue. You say, what do you mean by that? <clears throat> I don't read about Black Lives Matter in, in the New Testament. Jesus didn't talk about that. Right, he didn't. But it's very clear that the New Testament in numerous places is wrestling with a huge racial problem. 
It's the problem between Jews and Gentiles. And if you don't feel that that's a big racial issue, it's because you didn't have to live through it. That's the only reason. If you were back there in that first century trying to figure out what the church was going to look like with the apostles, you would know how huge that is. That's why in Acts chapter 15, they call a council to discuss a racial question. Now, it's a theological question as well, but it's a racial question very definitely. The question is, how do you get Jews and Gentiles who for centuries have hated one another to come together in one body and love each other? That's the racial question. And the first big gathering is Acts 15 to try to settle that, but they only make a start at it. And so Paul in Romans and in Galatians and in Ephesians is talking about that. Remember Ephesians chapter 2? Christ has broken down the middle wall of petition so that the two should become one new humanity. He's talking about a racial issue. So this race question, it's a kingdom of God discussion, friends. And our purpose as elders in reading this book is the feeling that we need to listen to our black brothers and sisters for the sake of the gospel. It's not that political discussion I mean, you can say, well, it has some bearing upon it, but that's not the discussion we're having. Because as we discuss that over a number of different sessions together in the elders, our discussion was not marked by fear or anger or contempt. That's what I'm saying. It's not, it's not a political left-right question. What I did here among the elders was expressions of repentance. That's what the kingdom's about, huh? That's what John the Baptist said, repent because the kingdom's at hand. He didn't say get angry. This, I mean, it's a personal issue for me, friends. I grew up, I've told you before, my grandparents had great impact on my life. Uh, to a large extent, for good both on the Tyson side and the Dunbar side. On the Dunbar side, my grandmother and grandfather both loved the Lord. They loved the Bible. Uh, my grandfather taught the men's Bible class uh, at our little church in Philadelphia for 50 years. He loved the Bible. I got a lot of my love for Scripture from him. All right? You ready for the other shoe to drop? He was a very strong racist. And, and part of the struggle I had growing up was, how do you put that together? I mean, I sensed there was, a, there was a, a gap. I wouldn't have been able to express it in that way in those days, but there was a gap in his discipleship. Or say it this way, his view of the kingdom wasn't big enough. So they could pray, pray wonderful prayers of thanksgiving to Jesus and, and then 
use racial slurs to talk about the people in the neighborhoods in Philadelphia where he worked. And I don't think, I don't think he ever settled that. And, and so I grew up with this tension, I guess, and definitely with some r- racist attitudes. And I've been, I've been working at getting rid of those. And the way, we get, the way we deal with those things is not just to sit by ourselves and say, well, I'm not a racist. We need people on the other side to tell us what racism feels like in their experience before we can answer the question, am I racist or not? Does that make sense? 20 years ago, at Biblical Seminary, uh, we, we felt led of the Lord and we were invited by some people in the city of Philadelphia, I told you this before, to, to bring a, an urban theological training program to Philadelphia because all the other schools had moved out of the city and we felt that was the call of God, and so we did it. But part of what we found out in that experience was we didn't understand. <laughs> we didn't understand the world we were going into, and we needed, we needed to get educated. So uh, we, we had a couple, we started out with just some very fine students, a couple of whom later became actually adjunct faculty members at the seminary. One of them was Dan Williams. Uh, Dan, for years, was a pastor out in Coatesville, uh, African-American. He has recently been elected to be a state representative in Pennsylvania House. Uh, Just a good man, so thoughtful. And as we got into this program and realized there was so much we didn't understand, we, we asked Dan at our annual faculty retreat to take a couple sessions with us to talk to us about what his experience was as an African-American growing up in Philadelphia. I mean, you want your eyes open. That was, that was something. So, a, a long answer, and we could say a lot more, friends. But the question, are the elders moving in a liberal, progressive direction? The answer is no, not so far as I can tell. But we are trying to take seriously this idea of the kingdom of God, inviting us into a circle where we don't have to be afraid to ask the questions, where do we need to grow? How do we need to look different and act differently as God's people for the sake of a world and a country that is so polarized and so divided that we live in a a swamp of Fear and anger and contempt. I don't want to live that way. I don't want you to live that way either.
the kingdom. It's peace, and this is what Paul says, right? It's peace and love and joy in the Holy Spirit. But it's also a commitment to truthfulness, even when truth is hard to listen to. All right, well, so we're talking about the kingdom, and we're talking about transformation, which is what happens when we enter into God's kingdom. Last week, we looked at Philippians chapter 3 for a little while, and we saw this central principle that... uh, that Paul has, which is summarized in this little phrase. It's the way he talks about the gospel. The gospel for him is being in Christ, or sometimes he'll say with Christ, or, but the, the common phrase is in Christ or in him. It's all through his writings. And we tried to start talking about what that means, and And it certainly has this idea of being in the the sphere of influence of the Messiah or or the force field, if you will. Now, you say, well... That, that makes sense because, after all, we're enrolled in the school of the Messiah and, you know, your teacher is going to have an influence on you. Yeah, it's that, but there's something much deeper to it than that. It's some kind of a spiritual connection that is established between us and Christ that nobody that I have seen has adequate words to explain. We kind of talk around it and, and get an impression of what Paul is saying. So that's where we were last week as we left uh, Philippians 3. We're going to go back there, and uh, what I want to do is focus more on this in Christ idea, and I want to talk about the two kinds of righteousness. Now, if you just read through in a cursory fashion, you won't even see this in Philippians 3. Uh, You might say, well, Dave, maybe it's because it isn't there. Uh, Yeah, okay. Uh, but, but I'm going to try to persuade you that there are two kinds of righteousness spoken of and that we need to understand those two kinds if we're going to understand Paul's idea of being in Christ and if we're going to understand his idea of transformation and how it comes about. All right? So, two kinds of righteousness. Let's read a few verses from Philippians 3 again. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh... I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, there's that phrase, in him, 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, or variant translation here, which I prefer, through the faithfulness of Christ. little difference there, but uh, we'll talk about that in a bit. So he wants this righteousness that comes through the faithfulness of Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Now, verse 12 makes it very clear that Paul's talking about transformation. He's not using the word, but but it's right there, isn't it? Paul says, I haven't arrived at my goal. I'm in process. I press on. So there's transformation. And it's in Christ, and it involves two kinds of righteousness. Now, so that I don't get accused of plagiarism, I need to tell you that the title for this sermon is taken straight from Martin Luther. And, uh, and one of his most important little treatises that, that he published in 1519, which is just two years, year and a half after the start of the Protestant Reformation. And uh, I'm taking a couple paragraphs from him because he talks about the two kinds of righteousness and I think it's helpful. See if you can follow what he says here. There are two kinds of Christian righteousness. The first is alien righteousness. That is the righteousness of another. Alien, foreign to me, right? Instilled from without. This is the righteousness of Christ by which he justifies us through faith. The second kind of righteousness is our proper righteousness. Not because we alone work it, but because we work with that first and alien righteousness. So here's the the two kinds of righteousness that we are going to think about. Luther is the man who God uses to highlight this in the history of Christianity. Uh, You can only find, after the New Testament, you can only find a few hints of this sort of understanding of the gospel all the way through the medieval period. And it's in the beginning of the 16th century that uh, Luther uh, has this uh, explosive kind of insight, which changed his life, but really changed Europe as well. It created a, a revolution of many sorts, social, theological, and all the rest. And of all the stuff that Luther did, and, and he did a whole lot of thinking and writing, but this idea of the two kinds of righteousness is probably the most important contribution he makes in the history of theology. 
And I think it's helpful to us as we look at this passage in Philippians. So given our time, this morning we're just going to look at that first righteousness, what he calls alien righteousness. I'm going to call it the righteousness of faith. The second kind, which he calls proper righteousness, we're going to call the righteousness of love, and we're going to discuss that next week because... My sermon's too long for today. (laughs) All right, so let's think about this righteousness of faith. This is probably, for most evangelical Christians, this is probably the righteousness that we understand the best. This is is sort of key to our understanding of the gospel. But let's, let's rehearse it anyway. This righteousness that Paul talks about Not just Luther, right? Paul says, I want to be found in him with a righteousness not my own that derives from the law and keeping the law and being obedient, even though though he says earlier on, he says, you know, if if you want to measure up, I, I was faultless in regard to keeping the law. But this is a righteousness, Paul says, that comes to us on the basis of faith. What that means for him is, that this is a gift righteousness. And he makes that explicit in his letter to the Ephesians, where he says that we have been saved by grace through faith, and faith is is trusting, right? That's, That's the notion of faith, trusting in God's promises, So we've been saved by grace through faith, and now he makes it just as as explicit as he can. This is not from yourselves. It's God's gift. That's why in Philippians, he says, whatever things were gained to me, including my law-keeping, I count those now as rubbish. Paul says, I'm not interested in what I could do or might do to earn God's favor, his justifying work. And justification is the idea of being put right with God. Okay? Justification is God saying, you are in a right relationship with me. So, so the big thing about this, which, which Luther in the 16th century caught so clearly, was that this was a gift. And that was revolutionary for him, because he was a monk. And as Paul was a good Pharisee, Luther was a good monk. He's got that great statement where he says, if If ever a monk could be saved by monkery, I was the one. You know, he'd he'd do vigils, pray all night, confess until he didn't know what to confess anymore. And uh, so he did all that, and the problem was, in the end, it didn't work. That is, he he didn't feel peaceful with God. He confessed as much as he could, but... But then he'd say to himself, how can you ever know enough to confess everything? 
uh, and some of his confessors and his teachers would say to him, well, you know, do the best that you can, which is, you still hear all over the place today, right? Do the best that you can. And Luther, part of the reason he was so insightful is that he was pretty honest with himself. And, and when he heard this, do the best that you can, he said, yes, but whoever does the best that they can. And so that root of, we might say, self-salvation or performance was closed off to him. It did not work. But it was in his study of the book of Romans that he had this insight about a righteousness which is not a righteousness that God requires from us, but it's a righteousness that he gives to us. It's gift. That's what he says here in Ephesians. And because it's a gift, then none of us can boast in what we've received. We receive it by faith, which means God makes this promise that in Christ we are right with him. We're justified and faith says, however that can be, I believe it. I, I receive it. And I don't put confidence in what I've done. Uh, just as my sin doesn't prevent me from being in Christ, so my good works don't help me. In fact, they may get in the way of being in Christ. There's a lot of people, a lot of good people out there who never come to Christ because they think they don't need it. It's a gift from God, this righteousness, and it's based on the faithfulness of Christ. Now that's why I like that alternate translation. You may have it in the margin in your Bible, I don't know. But rather than, uh, I think the NIV gives it as an alternative. But rather than being saved through the faith in Christ, we read it saved through the faithfulness of Christ. Christ. Great is thy faithfulness is that hymn that we sing from time to time, one of the great hymns of our faith. And it speaks of God's faithfulness there, but the emphasis here in Philippians is on the faithfulness of Jesus in particular. It's his faithfulness to what God gave him to do. He is sent into the world to save the world, to make atonement, to provide a way that you and I can return to God, that you and I can be justified, to put, be put in right relationship. And that takes place, Paul says, as a gift that God gives in Jesus who is the absolutely 100% full-time faithful son to his father. When Jesus was accused of unfaithfulness, being a false prophet, a blasphemer, all the rest, how did he respond? The Gospels say, he said of himself, I do always those things that please the Father. And the resurrection 
is the proof that what he said about himself was true. He was the one and is the one who always does. He's always faithful to what God has given him to do. How would you like that on your record on the day of judgment? Perfect faithfulness. How do you like that? Well, friends, that's what the gospel tells us. <laughs> the gospel says that believing in Jesus means that his record of perfect faithfulness is what puts us right for God because we are in him, that mysterious idea. So here, here's the, the little phrase I used to give it to my students. I'll give it to you. I think maybe I've said it before, but it, it's very important right here. That Paul's understanding and the gospel understanding of, of Jesus is this, that whatever happens to Jesus happens to all of his people. Whatever happens to him, because we are in him by faith. And so his faithfulness, which God validated in the resurrection and highly exalted him, his faithfulness is at the root of our salvation. <clears throat> And that uh, leads us to where we're going to finish today. It leads us to what uh, my friend Paul Miller in his book, uh, J-Curve, would call the Jesus Curve. And we're going to have to think about this Jesus Curve <clears throat> over the next few weeks because in the area of transformation, this is absolutely fundamental. So we've got to start getting our mind around this. What is the Jesus Curve? Well, Paul talks about it many places, but, but just one chapter earlier from what we've read. Philippians 2, that well-known Christ hymn, as it's often called. The Jesus curve, you can see the J, kind of a lopsided J there in the diagram. Here's the Jesus curve. In Philippians 2, Paul says that he was obedient unto death, to the point of death, because he's absolutely faithful, and because of his obedience unto death, God has raised him up, and, and in fact, Paul says, God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. So here's, here's the pattern of the J-curve, which is at the heart of our salvation. It's death and rising. Now, remember our little slogan? Whatever happens to Jesus happens to all his people. That means... That if Jesus died and rose again, then those who are in Jesus by faith, they have died 
and they have been raised up again. Now, that's a, that's a mind-bender, folks, right? Because none of you look dead to me. Some of you look like you're asleep, but you don't look like you're dead. But Paul says, in this union we have with Jesus, whatever happens to him, he died, so we've died. And he's been raised up, so we've been raised up as well. Here's what he says in Colossians. Do you remember this from our Colossians study? Colossians 3, you died. And your life is hidden, here's his phrase, with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Why? Because his life is now hidden with Christ in God. The world doesn't see Jesus now, and we don't see him. He's with us in the person of the Holy Spirit, but we don't yet see him. His life is hidden, but that means your life is hidden too. When Christ, our life, is revealed, what? Then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Why? Because whatever happens to him happens to you. That's Paul's understanding of the gospel. So so there's two J-curves we're talking about here. And we're going to talk about more J-curves. Because Paul's got a lot of them. But the first J-curve is Jesus himself. Dying and rising again. But but then what Paul is saying is there is a faith J-curve. That happens to you by faith. I die with Christ. I rise with Christ. What does Paul say in Ephesians? He says we've been buried with him and we are now seated with him in the heavenly places. Why? Because that's where he's seated. So we're there. We're we're connected with him. Strange way of talking, huh? But, But very important for us in understanding the gospel. Well, Uh, We're going to push on with this next week. We're going to stop for today. Uh, But here's the thing. When, When the gospel is fresh and powerful in our lives, this is a mystery. I won't say we understand, but but we get it, right? Somehow we get this idea that our status before God depends entirely on our relationship to Jesus Christ and not upon some sort of stuff that we work out and some good that we do that God approves of. None of that. This this is really at the heart of it. Jesus is the center of salvation. And I need to be connected with him in faith. And how do I get connected? Well, I ask for it. Simple, simple as that. That's, that's what the prayer of the sinner is about. <laughs> Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, I need, I need this kind of salvation because my sin is such that nothing else 
can save me. But the faithfulness of Jesus is enough not only for me, but for the whole human race. That's the gospel, friend. That's the, that's the good news. And it may be that, that you've not understood this ever in your life. You may have heard a message like this before, but it just never clicked. I mean, that's, that's the way it happens sometimes. Uh, so, you know, if, if this is the day that this light bulb comes on, then, uh, then you can take this step of faith. You can trust in Christ right now, today. <clears throat> or you can talk to me if you want and explore that further. And, and we can even help you to pray if you're not sure how to pray. But... You need to ask Jesus to be your Savior. You need to trust in him. So let's pray together. Lord, we're struck that the good news on the one hand is very simple and yet on the other hand it's profoundly deep and reaches far beyond our puny little minds to comprehend we thank you that faith doesn't have to be complicated it doesn't depend on great intellects That we can simply trust in your promises about what has taken place in the death and resurrection of Jesus and we can move into that place of acceptance and love that he has before you. Because we can be in him. God, only you could have devised such an extraordinary process. It indeed is by grace and by gift and by your love. And we thank you for that today. Help us as we move ahead to, to, to understand more fully what this good news is about. For the sake of Jesus, who is our Lord and Savior, amen. And now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the everlasting covenant brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he make you perfect in every good thing to do his will working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and forever. Amen. Go in the peace of God.